Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we turn to Thee once more. We are ever conscious of our need of Thee in that blessing that Thou alone canst give us, but especially so, O Lord, when we are concerned directly about the work of Thy kingdom. We would re-echo again the words of Thy servant of old, Who is sufficient for these things? So we pray Thee to look upon us and to have mercy upon us and to grant us Thine own blessing. Give us understanding, O Lord, but above all, give us a single eye to thy glory and to thy praise. Hear us as we come. In the name of thy dear Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, now, you remember we had to leave off yesterday afternoon before I'd quite completed this point about the relationship of the pew to the pulpit, or the listener to the preacher. And um, we considered it in a measure in terms of the teaching of the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and tried to explain what that means. So now I come to the point at which I can try to sum this up. So I put down as the first uh, statement that the pew is never to dictate to or to control the pulpit. I think this needs to be said at the present time and said very definitely and emphatically. So that's, a, that's a, a postulate that I would lay down, that the pew, the pew is never to dictate or to control. But then, having said that, I say this, that the preacher nevertheless has to assess the condition of the pew and to adapt his message in a measure to it. You notice how I'm putting it. It isn't that the listener is to control, but that the preacher is to assess the condition and the position of the listener. Let me give you uh, my uh, scriptural basis for making this assertion. There are several. I pick out some obvious ones. Take, for instance, what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 at the beginning. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal, and so on. Now, obviously, he is saying there that what he did was influenced by the condition of the people in Corinth. It wasn't that they were dictating to him, but it was that he was making an assessment of them. And this... Uh, comes prominently into what he preached to them. But let me give you a second example. You get it in the epistle to the Hebrews in chapter 5, uh, beginning at verse 11. The author has been referring to our Lord as an high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Then he goes on, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing for when for the time ye ought to be teachers ye have need that one teach you again which be the first principles of the oracles of God and have become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat for everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness for he is a babe but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised 
to discern both good and evil. Now, there again, of course, is exactly the same thing. He wants to tell them about this doctrine concerning our Lord and his high priesthood. But he can't do it because he judges that they're not yet capable of taking it. Now, this is, uh, of course, an elementary point in all teaching. The first thing the teacher in any realm has to do is to assess the capacity of his hearers, of his listeners, his pupils, his students, whatever they are. And uh, this is something that I would emphasize because I think many men in the ministry, and particularly when we are younger, we tend to pre preach to people as we would like them to be instead of as they are. This is more or less, of course, inevitable. Uh, we, have, we, have read of, we have read biographies, perhaps, or read of preachers, or may have read the Puritans, and we've got a picture in our minds, a kind of ideal picture of what preaching is. And we then go and proceed to do that, forgetting uh, that the people who listened to the Puritans, who sometimes would preach, as you know, for three hours at a time, that those people had been trained to this uh, for in various ways over more or less a century. Uh, I, I don't want to digress onto this, but I do think people often forget that the major, the works of the major Puritans, which are most accessible to us, uh, were written about the middle of the 17th century, when Puritanism had been going for about a hundred years. These were a prepared people trained and instructed and therefore capable of doing this. Well, you can well see that if a man doesn't understand this sort of point and tries to preach uh, as the Puritans preached and to go on for a couple of hours, well, he'll soon find that he won't have a congregation to preach to. Uh, so it is very important that the preacher should make an assessment of the people to whom he's preaching. Let me give you an example which is ridiculous but which emphasizes the point. Uh, a women's meeting used to be held in connection with the church where I was in London on Tuesday afternoons. And it was not for the women of the church. They were not church members. It was a meeting that had been going many years for the poorer women in the district. And um, it did serve a purpose. It was primarily evangelistic in its object. Well, they used to have different speakers there every Tuesday afternoon. Uh, these were poor old women, and uh, uh, the age was going higher and higher. The younger women were busy in their homes and cleaning offices and doing things like that. So the age was tending to go up and up and up, and they were old and somewhat decrepit. But there they came, about 40 to 50 of them every Tuesday afternoon. Well, there was difficulty in getting speakers, of course, and uh, there was a young medical man uh, attached to the church and a member of the church and very anxious to help in every way he could. So my wife asked him one Tuesday afternoon if he would speak at the meeting, and he was very happy indeed to do so. And he turned up and he gave an address on the Trinity uh, to these old ladies. Well, you see, I'm telling you that in order to ridicule this. Here is a man, a medical man, whom you would have thought would have some idea of assessing people, but he hadn't thought of it even. He was probably giving what he thought was the best address he'd got. But of course it was idle, it was useless. You do not give strong meat to babes, you give milk to them. This is the principle which is taught both by the Apostle Paul and here in the Epistle to the Hebrews. 
But now I want to add something to this. While it is the duty and the business of the preacher to make an assessment of his congregation, we must be careful that this is a true assessment and an accurate one. This is an extremely important point. This is a thing which is dangerous, both from the standpoint of the pulpit and of the pew. Uh, the, the pulpit may make a wrong assessment of the pew. The pew may make a wrong assessment of itself. And I suggest that both are happening today. And it is one of the causes and explanations of our present position. The main danger as regards the pulpit in this matter is to assume that all who claim to be Christian and who think they are Christian and who are members of the church are therefore of necessity Christian. I think this is the most fatal blunder of all, and certainly the commonest. It's assumed that because people are members of the church that they're Christian. Now, uh, I say this is uh, dangerous and wrong for this reason, that if you come to that conclusion, you will tend therefore in all your services to preach as to Christian believers, and it will always be instructional. And the evangelistic element and note will be neglected perhaps almost entirely. Now, I think this is a very great fallacy. Uh, and uh, I'll give you some reasons for saying that. I would start even with my own personal experience, which was that for many years I thought I was a Christian without being one. It was only later I came to see that I'd never been a Christian and became one. But I was a member of a church all right and uh, attended my church fairly regularly. So anybody assuming, as most preachers did, that I was a Christian were making a false assumption. It was not a true assessment of my condition. And what I needed was preaching that would convict me of sin and make me see my need and bring me to true repentance and tell me something about regeneration. I never heard that. The preaching we had was always on the assumption that we were all Christians that we wouldn't have been there in the congregation unless we were Christians. This, I think, is one of the cardinal errors, especially in this present century. But then, this has been reinforced, I don't know how many times, in my own experience as a preacher and as a minister. I think I can say quite accurately that the most common experience I've had in conversation with people who've come to me in my vestry to discuss the question of becoming members of the church and when I question them about why they want to be members and what their experience is and so on the commonest answer I have had particularly in London over 30 years is this these people would tell me and they were generally uh, either undergraduates or uh, new graduates they would tell me that they came up to London to the university uh, from their home churches, fully believing that they were Christians. They have no doubt about it. And they'd asked their home church before coming up to London where they should go, and some of them had been referred to us in that way. And then this is what they tell me, that having started to come and to listen to the preaching, and especially on Sunday nights when, as I've told you already, I was invariably evangelistic, the first thing they discovered was that they'd never been Christians at all. 
that they were acting on a false assumption. And at first some of them were quite honest in confessing that they'd been rather annoyed at this. They didn't like it. They resented this. But there it was. It was a fact. And then, realizing that though they didn't like it, that this was the truth, they continued coming. And then would go perhaps for months through a period of repentance, in great trouble about their souls, afraid to trust almost anything because they'd already assumed that they were Christian and now find that they hadn't been Christians, but eventually coming to see the truth clearly and experiencing its power and becoming truly Christian. Now, I'm telling you that this is my commonest experience in the ministry. Now, there are many people, you see, who would have assumed, as many do assume, that anybody who comes to a service regularly must be a Christian. I'm trying to show you that this is a false assumption. Let me tell you another story, a still more striking one, and I'm only doing this to bring out the point. It was my pleasure and privilege to be asked to preach for a number of Sundays in Canada, in Toronto in 1932. And uh, I went, and I remember on the first Sunday morning being welcomed by the minister of the church who, though on vacation, was still uh, not out of town. And he introduced me and I thought it would be wise for me to indicate to the congregation my method. And I told them that my method was that I would assume uh, generally on Sunday morning that I was speaking to believers, to the saints, and I tried to edify them, but that at night I would be preaching on the assumption that I was speaking to non-Christians. Undoubtedly, there would be many such there, but I would be addressing myself to the non-Christian. And I just said that in passing. Well, then we went through the service, and at the end, the minister asked me if I'd stand at the door with him to shake hands with people as they went out, and I did. And having shaken the hands with a number, he then whispered to me, he said, you see that old lady who's coming there? And I could see an old lady coming along slowly. He said, now she is the most important woman in this church. A very wealthy woman, he said, the greatest supporter of the work. He was, in other words, telling me to exercise what little charm I might possess to the, max <laughs> uh, to the, ma to the maximum, and uh, I needn't explain anything further. Well, now, the old lady came along, and I shall never forget this. It taught me a great lesson. I was a young preacher then, and uh, the consternation of the minister was the thing that impressed me most of all. The old lady came along and said, did I understand you to say that in the evening you were preaching on the assumption that people were not Christian and in the morning on the assumption that they are Christian? Yes, I said. Well, she said, having heard you this morning, I have decided to come tonight. She'd never been known to attend the evening service at all, never. She never went at night, only in the morning. She said, I am coming tonight, and I could feel the minister by my side. It was oozing out of him that I was ruining his ministry, and so on. But the fact was that the old lady did come on Sunday night, and every single Sunday night that I was there, and I met her in private conversation, and she was most unhappy about her whole condition. She didn't know where she stood. You see, now there it was assumed. She was a fine character. Everybody assumed, not only the minister, but everybody else, that this was an exceptionally fine Christian. Wasn't a Christian at all. You see, this is where this correct assessment, 
This idea that because people are members of the church and come, that they must be Christian, is one of the most fatal assumptions of all. And I'm suggesting to you it accounts for so much of the state of the church today. Very well then. So we must be uh, very careful at this point. But then from the standpoint of the pew, the same thing works out. The same wrong assumption is made. And because these people assume that they're Christians, they um, tend to resent preaching, which assumes that they're not Christian. Uh, I could tell you a story here again. A lady who left Westminster Chapel in London after listening to me for about a year, and she gave her reason for going. Not to me, but to somebody else. She said, this man preaches to us as if we were sinners. And this was this, this 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 was terrible. She was made to feel uncomfortable, and she didn't like this. She'd been in the church, uh, getting on then for thirty years. But she showed that she was antagonistic to the truth, when really faced with it in a direct, personal way. She liked uh, general addresses, uh, or sermons, based. Uh, on the scriptures for, for believers. They, they didn't hurt her, they didn't uh, trouble her, they didn't examine her, they didn't convict her. She reveled in this, but she didn't like it when it became personal and direct. Now this is a very common attitude indeed. And this is where I feel we've got to be very careful in this whole matter of assessment. It's a very common attitude. I remember again getting a letter once from one of the most prominent leaders of the Plymouth Brethren in London. I knew his name well, I'd never met the man, but I got a letter from him and I recognized the name. And this is what he told me in the letter, that he had been in the congregation at our church on the Sunday night and he had made a strange discovery. And the discovery he had made was this, that it was possible for a believer of his age and standing to derive benefit from what was clearly and obviously an evangelistic service. He had assumed, he told me, all his life that this was impossible, and that when a believer like himself went on a Sunday evening, all he did was to pray for the unconverted. He couldn't derive any benefit from it. He'd already passed through that stage. So he didn't expect, but he had discovered in spite of himself and all these ideas that he'd got, that the service had moved him and gripped him and had done something for him. And he didn't think this was possible. He'd made this discovery for the first time in his life. Now, you see, this obviously is, is a, a very important matter. It's, it, it, it has a great influence upon the preacher and what he does. How do we explain this sort of thing? Well, it seems to me that the trouble is that many people who think they are Christian and who have accepted the teaching of the scriptures intellectually have never come under the power of the word. They've never known its power. It's been something purely intellectual. And I suggest that as they've never really come under its power, they've never truly repented. They may have had a kind of sorrow for sin, but that's a very different thing from repentance. And this is the explanation of their position. So, you see, the true believer always feels the power of the word. 
and he still can be convicted. Belief, in a sense, is once and forever, and in another sense it isn't. And to me there is something radically wrong with a man who calls himself a Christian, who can listen to a truly evangelistic sermon without coming under conviction again, without feeling something of his own unworthiness, and rejoicing when he hears the gospel remedy being presented. Now, if a man can listen to such a sermon without being touched or moved, I would take leave to query whether he's a Christian at all. If he feels that he's outside it, it is inconceivable to me that a man who is a true believer can listen to a presentation of the exceeding sinfulness of sin and the glory of the gospel without being moved in two ways. One is to feel himself again in view of what he knows about the plague of his own heart, that perhaps he's not a Christian at all, and then to rejoice in this glorious gospel remedy which gives him deliverance. Again, there is nothing that I've been told more frequently, perhaps at the close of such a service, than something like this. A man or a woman will come in and say, you know, if I hadn't been converted before, I would certainly have been converted tonight. I always like to hear that. That means that they've felt the power of the gospel again. And they've seen the whole thing. And, and they've, as it were, almost repeated their experience. And what I'm putting to you is that there must of necessity be something wrong with a one who claims to be a Christian who doesn't come in this way under the power of this glorious gospel every time it is presented. In other words, we must be very careful that we don't uh, indulge in too rigid classification of people, saying these are Christians, therefore. You've got to be very sure that they are. But this is the tendency to say, oh, well, yes, we become Christians either as the result of our baptism or else as a result of some decision we've taken at an evangelistic meeting, and now as we are Christian, all we need now is teaching and edification. I'm contesting that very strongly, and uh, suggesting that we should always have one evangelistic service in our church every week. I would make this an absolute rule, without any hesitation whatsoever. I do so, as I say, because I believe uh, that this is the main trouble today in the churches, in every land, at the present time. Now, I, I've always remembered a thing that an old man told me many years ago. We were discussing together the sad decline in the spiritual tone and spirituality of the churches in Wales, as it happened in particular. And I asked him, I said, well, now, I was, we were dealing with the Presbyterian Church in particular, which had started in the 18th century as the result of the Evangelical Awakening, the Calvinistic Methodist Church. And I'd read the history of all this. And I said to him, now, when did the transition take place from what one reads about the early history, the first hundred years of this denomination, and what you and I know her to be now? When did this transition take place? Uh, and he told me, he said, I have no hesitation in telling you that the answer really is that it took place just after the revival of 1859. Well, how I said, well, in this way, he said, 
that revival was so powerful that it uh, more or less swept everybody into the church. Before that, there had been a distinction between the church and the world. Uh, their uh, tests of admission to membership had been very strict. And so there were always a number of people in the church, he said, who were listeners and adherents. They hadn't become members. Now this is a very interesting and important point. You don't get much of this today. You get, uh, you get some of it uh, still in, in, in the Free Church of Scotland and in the north of Scotland, but otherwise it's almost unknown. But it used to be the case that there were always listeners and adherents as well as the members. And what he said was, you see, that as the result of this great movement of the Spirit, that these adherents and listeners, as it were, had been swept into the church. And the result was the preachers said, well, now all the people are Christians, they're believers. They stopped preaching evangelistically. There was never an evangelistic service at all. It was assumed that everybody was a Christian. And so they gave them this edification ministry with the result that a generation soon came along which had never known the power of the gospel at all and never really heard preaching which was likely to convict them. And as I've told you, I belong to, one, to that generation. It was the second generation after this revival. And what I found was that I really had never heard a truly convicting evangelistic sermon. But of course I was received into the church because I could give the right answers and so on. But I was never questioned experimentally at all. And so you get this tendency to assume that because people come that they must be Christian. You will find, and I'm hoping to revert to this later, that one of the most romantic elements in the life of a preacher is just this discovery that people whom everybody would assume to be Christians are suddenly converted and become Christians. And it's a very, it has a very powerful effect upon the life of a church when that happens to a number of people. Very well then, I am urging that all the people who attend need to be brought under the power of the gospel. The gospel is not merely and only intellectual. And if our preaching is always uh, exposition or edification or teaching, you will find that you will develop members in your church who are hard and cold and often harsh, and certainly self-satisfied. I don't know of any way that is more likely to produce a congregation of Pharisees than just that. And then, of course, that will express itself in that they only attend the services once on Sunday. Once is enough for them. They don't need any more. They wouldn't dream of going on Sunday night. They only go Sunday morning. They become oncers, as we call them. Now, isn't this something which is truly deplorable? But I'm tracing it to this wrong assessment on the part of the pulpit and the pew. They agree in their diagnosis that these people are Christian. And they don't preach to them in such a way as to make sure that they are Christian. And I'm suggesting that that kind of preaching should be indulged in at least once. One service every week. Very well. But that then, of course, leads to a word to the listeners. And this is a part of preaching. 
because with this wrong assumption, uh, many of these uh, listeners will not come to the evangelistic service, feeling they have no need of it and it's got nothing to give them. And uh, the preacher won't be surprised because he has the equally wrong view and therefore doesn't expect them to come. But now this to me is, is, is really a, a part of the whole problem today. And so it is a part of my job here in talking about preaching to address a word to the listeners. And in other words, that you will have to do the same. And what do we say to them? Well, we have to emphasize to them the importance of being present at every service of the church. Every service. Why? Well, here's my first answer. And I've often used this argument and people have come to see it. They should be present at every service lest they may find that they're not present when something really remarkable takes place. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, you see, this involves the whole question of what is preaching, which we've already dealt with. This pneumatic element, this power of the spirit element, which again I'll have to develop yet more. But this is the thing which we must recapture about a church service and a preaching service. You never know what's going to happen. If you do know what's going to happen, well then I don't think you should be there at all. The whole glory of the ministry is that you don't know what's happening. Of course, you know what's happening in a lecture. You're in control, but you're not when it's preaching. And suddenly into a service may come this other element, a touch of the power of the Spirit of God. And it is the most glorious thing that can ever happen to any individual or company of people. And so I say to people, if you don't come to every service, you may live to find a day when people will tell you of the amazing thing that happened on a Sunday night or on a Sunday morning and you were not there and you missed it. In other words, we should create this expectation in the people and put it in that way to them, the danger of missing it. But then I want to put a question. Why is it that a Christian doesn't want as much of this as he can possibly get? Surely this is something that uh, is unnatural. It's wrong. Take the psalmist in Psalm 84. You remember his expressing his sense of misery and of sorrow because he couldn't go up with the others to the house of the Lord. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts, and so on. My soul longeth even fainteth with the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for thee, the living God. And he thinks of them, blessed are they that dwell in thy house, they will be still praising thee. And he thinks of these people, he can't be with them, but he's longing to be with them. A day in thy courts is better than a thousand. Surely, this ought to be instinctive in the true Christian. And I suggest there is something seriously wrong spiritually with one who claims to be a Christian, who doesn't desire to have every ounce that can be obtained from the ministry of the church. Or let me put this in a different way. I've gathered from what a number of you have told me already that a mentality has developed in the pew in this country as in Great Britain, which uh, wants to dictate to the preacher as to the length of his sermon. A timetable. Uh, I've been told by many young preachers that 
when they've arrived at a church to preach, they've been given an order of service paper and the time has actually been put down. 11 o'clock, call to worship. 12, noon, benediction. <laughs> quite, quite seriously, it, 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 it happens. And, 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 and I've been told by some of you that people complain about the length of sermons in this way. Now, why is this? Isn't there something wrong with such people? This isn't their attitude to a play or a, uh, something on the television. The trouble with that is that it's too short. It's the same with, the, with the, a football match or a baseball match or whatever else it is. The pity is that these things come to an end. But why, why different here? This, this is the most serious question. You see, those other people in those other realms, they want the thing to go on because they enjoy it and they like it and they want it. Do the Christians not? In other words, I'm raising this question, that though you think these people are Christians because they come to the service at all, I am suggesting to you that if they put these time limits on your sermons, they are more or less telling you that they're not Christians, that they're lacking in spiritual life. And then why is it that... Uh, so often they're listless in their very listening. They often are. They almost give the preacher the impression that he's allowed to preach by their leave. And as I say, it's got to be fairly short for, in the, for the same reason. And uh, there are people who sort of settle down to endure this sun. Now this, 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 this is this is a negation. This is a negation of what should be the attitude of the true preacher. I remember a man, one of my predecessors, John Hutton, to whom I've already referred, had a very amusing story to say in this connection. Uh, he, uh, as I'm trying to show you, uh, held the view that it is the, the pulpit that really creates the pew and the listener. It, it's uh, good listeners are produced by good preaching, and. Um, he used to tell this amusing story. He was preaching in a church once, and he was uh, just uh, giving out his text. And as he did so, he saw a man in the far back of the church in a corner seat, uh, settling down into the corner and putting his legs up on the seat, obviously settling down. Well, now, John Hutton couldn't pass a thing like that. So he addressed this man directly. He said, now, sir, he said, I don't know you, he said, but... Whoever you are, I don't think you're being quite fair. He said, if at the end of my sermon you are asleep, well, then the blame will be mine. But he said, you know, you're not even giving me a chance. <laughs> you are settling down to sleep even as I'm giving out my text. He said, you're not fair. Now, I think this is very true, that many members of congregations come in such a frame of mind and such an attitude Indeed, I have come to the conclusion during the last year that a number of people seem to me to go to a place of worship and to a service in order to go home. <laughs> Their main idea is to get out and to get home. Why do they go at all? That's the question I think that needs to be asked. Why this great anxiety for it to end and for it to finish? Well, I say there's only one conclusion. These people need to be humbled. These people are lacking in spirituality. They're lacking in a spiritual mind and outlook and in a spiritual understanding. Now, this isn't simply my opinion. I, I say this on the basis 
that I am comparing them with what I'm told about the early Christians in Acts 2. <coughs> this, is, this is how they, we all should be. What are we told about them? This is what we are told about them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And they, and they continuing daily, daily, with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now here were Christians, you see, who met every day for this preaching and teaching and instruction. Not only on Sunday or once on Sunday, and anxious to get home as soon as they could, hoping it would be short, and annoyed with the preacher of it isn't short, daily continued steadfastly, daily. This was the thing they wanted above everything else. And of course, it's inevitable. Peter uses this expression as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that he may grow thereby. And the newborn babe does desire the sincere milk of the word. If the newborn babe doesn't desire the sincere milk of the word, he's ill, he's marasmic, he's in a bad state. You'd better take him to see a doctor. Nature cries out for the nutriment that is appropriate to it. And if you've got people whom you think are Christians and who themselves think they are Christians, who don't want the preaching of the word and who don't revel in it and rejoice in it and want as much as they can possibly get of it, I am suggesting that you ask the question, are these people Christian? It's contrary to nature. Then they don't conform to what we're told about the Christians in the New Testament. These people reveled in it, they gloried in it, they rejoiced in it, and they were a praising people. They didn't do this mechanically, they didn't do it as a matter of duty, they didn't do it because it was the expected thing, they didn't do it with a sort of, well, I've been to the service, I've done my duty, then I can go and write my family letters now the rest of the day or do various other things. Not at all. They couldn't get enough of it. As I've often put it, the New Testament preachers, the apostles, didn't have to go around houses and urge people to come to the services. The difficulty with these people was to send them home. They wanted to spend the whole of their time. They wanted to spend the whole of their time in this atmosphere. And the more they got, the more they wanted. Daily, steadfastly, you couldn't keep them away. And surely, this has been the characteristic of the church always, in every period of Reformation and Revival. John Calvin used to preach every day in Geneva, every day. And people were thirsting to hear him and the others. This was true of Luther. This has always been true in every epoch in the life of the church when she's truly been functioning as the church. But if we're only interested in lectures or some intellectual pabulum, well, of course, you won't expect this and you won't get it. But I'm suggesting to you that if people don't want it, it's because of this wrong assessment which leads to the wrong type of preaching for them. This assumption that they're Christian when they're not Christian at all. But I would put it in my appeal to these listeners at its very lowest in these terms, that if they've got no other reason for being present at every service of the church, that this is a very powerful one, that there is a great value in numbers, great value in numbers. Look at it like this. Imagine a man in trouble who's not a Christian, a man of the world, He's in great trouble, got a terrible problem. 
Nobody can help him. It happens to pass a church, a place of worship. And he thinks he'll go in. And he goes in. Now, if he finds just a little handful of people there, looking miserable, <laughs> and as the man begins to preach, looking at their watches repeatedly, he'll come to the conclusion there's nothing in this. This handful of people, they do it probably because they were brought up to do it, haven't thought enough perhaps even to stop doing it, doesn't mean much to them, doing it obviously as a matter of routine and of sheer hard duty. He's going to be put entirely off, it won't help him. But if he goes into a church which is packed full of people and feels a keenness and a sense of anticipation, the people looking forward to something, you'll say there's something in this. What brings these people here? What brings this great number here? You see, the very fact of a crowd of people doing it has often been used by the Spirit of God to lead people to conviction and conversion. I've known this many, many times. Now, people don't stop and think about this, you see. They say, well, of course, I'll go to, go to the service and uh, it's my duty to do it and having done it, I'll feel better because I've done my duty and God listen to this address, I may get something out of it, I may not. You see, that expresses itself. People sense this and they feel it. And they feel there's not much value in it. But conversely, when they're given this other impression, of people who say we are going there because God meets with us here. This will transmit itself to this other in some odd way that one doesn't quite understand. And it will be a great thing in and of itself and may be used of God to bring them to a knowledge of the truth. Very well then. All this amounts to this. That what is needed in the pulpit is authority. Great authority. The pew is not in any shape or form to determine and to dictate to the pulpit. That is that absolute that I lay down. The pulpit is to make its assessment, but it is to do so with authority. And the greatest need in the church today is this authority in the pulpit. Well, how do you get it? How can we get this authority? Well, now we've got to be very careful. This has often been a problem. And has often been faced in the wrong way. You know the Tractarian movement of the last century, connected with the names of people like Cardinal Newman and Pusey and Manning and others. Now, this was the problem confronting them. They were conscious of the fact that the pulpit, the church, had lost their authority. And they began to search for some authority, and they took this fatal wrong step. They said the way to get authority is to take your preacher or your minister and remove him from the people, take him further away, put vestments upon him, deck him up as it were, put on cloaks. In other words, build his authority up in this outward spectacular manner and call him a priest and so on and then give him some kind of priestly authority in the sacraments and so on. Now, the motive was a very good one. They were seeking and searching for authority in the pulpit. But they took this false step, which led in the end to a depreciation of preaching and to a, a false emphasis upon sacraments and so on. Well, now, we, I take it all, are agreed that that is not the way to get this authority. Uh, let me incidentally say this also. Uh, amongst the free churches in the last century, 
they made an equally false move. They thought the way to get authority in the pulpit was to get scholarship there. Now scholarship is all right in its place, but scholarship alone will not give authority to the preacher. It will give him a scholarly authority, but that's not what you need primarily in a pulpit. In a pulpit you need spiritual authority. I've already said that the abler the preacher the better, the better equipped he is the better, on condition that all these things are but servants and handmaidens. They don't give him authority. There's only one thing that gives a preacher authority, and that is that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. It is the only authority, and I think that facts prove and substantiate what I'm saying to you. But now I'm going to say a thing, I'm going to add a thing to that which may come as a little bit of a surprise to you. Though I say that and assert that, at the same time, I do add that this thing which is going to sound almost ridiculous to you has its place in this whole matter. I believe it is a good and a right thing for a preacher to wear a gown in the pulpit. Well, says somebody, aren't you denying immediately what you've just been saying? about the spiritual authority. I'm not. The gown to me is a sign of a call and a sign of the fact that a man has been set apart to do this work. It's a sign of that. It's no more than that, but it is that. Of course, I must add this hastily, that while I believe in wearing a gown in the pulpit, I do not believe in wearing a hood in, on the gown. If you put on a hood, you're undoing the whole thing. You're calling attention to yourself and to your ability. It's no longer a sign of office, but a sign of your cleverness. And one man has a BD gown and the other a DD gown and another an MA and so on. It's monstrous. It's distracting attention from the spiritual authority of the preacher. Wear a gown, but never wear a hood. In other words, what this is asserting is and this is, you see, what many of these modern intellectuals who rather object to authority in the pulpit and who just want the simple reading of the scriptures and comments and discussions, they need to be told this, that that man is in the pulpit not because he is abler than they are, but because God has given him these special gifts, which he hasn't given to them. And they've had this call confirmed by the church. And therefore... They shouldn't feel in competition with him and ask who is he to lay down the law and to tell us this and that. We have as much knowledge and we can read the same books as he can. All right, we'll grant you all that. But still, this man has been set apart. Why? Well, there is something about him as the result of what God has done to him that gives him this authority that is not given to all. And if a, a Christian man, however able and learned and knowledgeable he may be, he is not ready to sit down and to listen to this man whom God has called and appointed and sent to perform this task. With joy and with anticipation, I take leave again to query whether the man is a Christian at all. So you see, it is a question of spiritual authority. And all should recognize this and therefore be ready to listen to the preacher. Now I'm coming to an end of this general consideration of what preaching is, this act of preaching. And in order to make it complete, I've got to add another word which may sound to you most unspiritual after what I've been saying. 
but it's important, and that is the building. After all, they're in a building, they've come to a building, and there is this man preaching to them. The buildings are important. Why? Well, because of the thing that brings them together. The building has its importance, but it mustn't be overdone. The Roman Catholics have overdone this, and most Catholics, anybody in the Catholic tradition, you see, they had a point, there was something. And, of course, the explanation of the ornate buildings that they put up in their cathedrals and so on, it was an attempt to give expression to their sense of the glory and the greatness of God, and they wanted to offer him suitable worship. But they so overdid that as to make such places almost impossible to preach in. And so they were neglecting the most important thing of all. And that is why I always say that a church building tells me a great deal about the people who built it. Now, a very interesting change took place about the middle of the last century, not only in Great Britain, but in this country. I've had a very great evidence of it in this country. Up until about then, the churches, the chapels, were very simple buildings, not ornate at all. They were called meeting houses, because they met together to worship God and to listen to the preaching of the gospel. And what you wanted was a place that was decent and suitable for people to do this. But you see, towards the middle of the last century, they began putting up these great and ornate buildings. I was preaching in one of them in this city ten days ago. Have you been in the Arch Street Church? It's a typical illustration of what I'm saying. Uh, in a sense, a very magnificent building. But what was it? Well, you see, those people betrayed themselves. They now began to say, of course, we now, as uh, nonconformists, we, uh, we are becoming respectable. We are becoming more educated now. And our plain buildings are not quite good enough. They began imitating the Anglican and the Catholic churches. And so they had these great domes and pillars, ornate buildings, which acoustically are almost impossible. But the idea was, you see, to... Sure, now that we'd got on, but thereby they said that they'd gone down in spirituality. As the building becomes more ornate, the spirituality invariably declines. This is true. Buildings tell us a great deal about the people who meet in them, and it's still more about the people who put them up. Very well. What do you want in a building? Well, what you should go for in the building is acoustics. Now, I'm making a point of this because... You men are likely to be in situations where a new church building will have to be put up. A lot of this has been happening in our country also. And it is a most amazing thing. I cannot think of a single instance of a new building put up in Great Britain since the last war. Many are to be rebuilt because of bombing. I can't think of a single one where they haven't already had to put in a public uh, aid, speaking aid, assistance. Why? Well, not because they're big buildings. Some of them are small buildings. But the acoustics are hopeless. Why? Because the architects generally know nothing about acoustics. They're interested in beauty, in the appearance, and they're interested in curves and so on. They know nothing at all about acoustics. They know nothing about preaching. The first essential in a building is that it should have 
good acoustics. How'd you get that? I'm taking advantage of the opportunity given me to, to address a word to architects. The great rule, the essential rule, is a flat ceiling, like you have here. Never have any sort of curve. Now take the church across the road where I preached last Sunday. It's a difficult church acoustically. Why? Not because it's big, but because they've got this sort of thing in the ceiling. It goes up and it curves. You must have a flat ceiling. The old fathers, they knew this. They built square buildings with a flat ceiling. And it doesn't matter how big they were, acoustically, they were almost absolutely perfect. It isn't the size of the building that matters. Make certain that you have a flat ceiling, no curbs, prohibit curbs, anywhere at all. <laughs> prohibit alcoves equally. Don't let them put too high a building. You see, this tendency to imitate uh, the Catholics and the Anglicans comes in and you get these great... Uh, the ceilings going up to a point like that, they're impossible to preach in. Now, the, the minister must be free. If a man's having to concentrate on his vice production, it's going to detract from the efficacy of his preaching. He should be free. And you can therefore uh, ensure that in that way. What about the pulpit? Well, put it in the center. Don't push it to the side somewhere. This is the greatest act of all in connection with the church and her function, preaching. The thing that's needed above everything else. Put your pulpit in the center. What about the height of the pulpit? Well, it's important. It should be in the right relative height as regards the listeners. The tendency now is to put low pulpits. That's because they don't know what preaching is. Don't misunderstand this. But architecturally, the preacher should preach down to his congregation always. It gives you a command. It makes it easier. Have the pulpit at an appropriate height. If you have a gallery in your pulpit, when the preacher stands in the pulpit, his eyes should be more or less level with the pre people sitting in the front row of the gallery. If, if they're higher, he's having to do this, which is bad for his throat. Let it be level with the front of the gallery, if there is one. And then, when you come to the actual height of the reading desk in the pulpit, this is again most important. I found it very difficult to preach across the road last Sunday because not only is the reading desk up to about here, but the whole pulpit is. And I felt I was almost like a man trying to do the breaststroke in swimming. <laughs> well, I'm very glad you do laugh at this. It would ridicule them out of existence. You, 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 you can't preach when you're in the sort of bottom of a box. You, 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 you must have freedom. So insist upon having it. I've already passed my time, so I'll close with a story just on this point. I remember over 30 years ago going to preach in a very big chapel in North Wales, and there was a man there. He was a sort of so-called popular preacher. And i never forget what he did. I couldn't make out what was happening. He received me in a very gentlemanly and lordly manner in his vestry, and then I could see him sort of looking me up and down. And I wondered whether I wasn't uh, dressed sufficiently well, or whether there was something seriously wrong that I was not aware of. And he was sort of looking me up and down. And then he came on and sort of touched me like that. <laughs> and I began to be uh, amused at this and wondered what was happening. And then he said to me, he said, um, I think two platforms will be sufficient. And what happened was this. There, 
He showed me afterwards, you see, there was this pulpit, and it was a church that sat about 1,400 people, and he knew it was going to be full. And he said, you know, no man can preach if the desk in front of him is higher than roughly the pit of his stomach. And so, in the interest of visiting preachers, he'd got them, he'd got them to fix into the front of the pulpit three platforms. The very tall man didn't need one at all. Then the next man came, you had to give him one platform. Another man needed two, some men needed three, so that they were all in this same relative position. You may say, this is ridiculous. I can assure you, if you do a lot of preaching, you will realize that it has its real importance. It's the Oliver Cromwell principle, isn't it? Trust in God and keep your powder dry. <laughs> Very well, we leave it at that for this afternoon. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.